Space is the final frontier. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? Exploring topics like the privatization of space, exploration and technology. And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. In the search for new planets and habitable worlds. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept. One we are unwilling to postpone. And one we intend to win. This is the Explorers Podcast. Brought to you by X-Labs. This week... We really wanted to dive into um, this first use case of the SLS uh, and focus in on one of the most exciting uh, current NASA missions um, underway right now, which is Artemis One, and then also you know follow up with that discussion on on some of the other Artemis um, missions that that will follow. So uh, why don't we? talk about that um, and introduce that a little bit. Miguel, what is Artemis One specifically? Yeah. So Artemis One is essentially the qualification flight for um, the Space Launch System rocket um, along with the Orion capsule uh, payload. And so the Space Launch System is is the, the side rocket boosters along with the main tank uh, and engines for the first stage. Um, and essentially, it's a new rocket. So NASA wants to put it through its paces, go through essentially what would be the equivalent of a, a real mission. Um, and alongside that, they're also going to do qualification testing for the Orion capsule. Now, the Orion capsule is rated to um, allow the survival of uh, its crew for up to 21 days. And so this mission is actually slated to last twice as long. And so... For all intents and purposes, they're really stretching the system um, to see if it's going to perform um, as expected when it's operating under the, the proper um, envelope conditions. But in addition to that, they're also going to be doing you know, a lot of uh, system testing. They have two uh, humanoid um, test platforms inside the Orion capsule that are meant to um, you know, measure a number of different um, life support um, pieces of data. Um, and so it's really uh, kind of like a dress rehearsal for uh, putting astronauts astronauts inside that capsule come Artemis too. Two points to make about this. There, there's been a budget allocation, even if Congress approves on an annual basis, but, but the allocation intended for the next decade, this is over the last next seven years, is $93 billion dollars. So that translates into over $10 billion a year. And what that is predicated on is the intent, which we, we, we uh, should be reminded of, that this is an intent to have a permanent presence on the moon moving forward. So we're not going to the moon like we did in the Apollo days just to sort of grab a few rocks and come back home. No, this is a long-term plan to stay and create infrastructure uh, of transportation and and uh, resource acquisition and science and exploration uh, 
that this entire system supports. So the $93 billion that NASA has estimated is likely to be approved and likely will increase over the years. That's, that's the exciting part to me. It's a, it's a deliberate intent for permanent presence and it's backed up by the dollars necessary to make it happen. Yeah, those, I mean, they're already being spent. Uh, the Lunar Gateway development, you know, that budget is already burning at close to 800 million a year right now and actually developing those capsules and uh, modules for the gateway itself. So we're, yep. you know, we're, we're pushing forward on all fronts. Gateway is scheduled to launch in November of 2024, and uh, it shows that um, it's able to go up in two different vehicles, um, both the Falcon Heavy and the SLS Block 1B. Now, considering um, the schedule of the vehicles um, and how Orion can only launch on the Space Launch system, it's more likely that the Lunar Gateway will be launched up by SpaceX on the Falcon Heavy. Uh, and that'll be uh, multiple launches, um, and they will probably all go on on Falcon Heavies. Miguel, would you see that changing if the Starship becomes operational would, and can take larger payloads? Would you see them switching the launch vehicles? Yeah, that's entirely possible. I mean, the, the Starship uh, and Super Heavy combo have much larger payload capacity. Uh, at presumably lower cost. Um, now, some of these um, government contracts, they, they sort of have it written written into the contract which vehicle they may launch on, um, especially if that if that contract or that vehicle is a is a government vehicle. Um, but they, there may be some flexibility, and that's actually one of the things that um, we've seen change from NASA in recent years. It is even though um, terms have been written into contracts, they're willing to take their their uh, providers to task and say, hey, if you're not able to meet um, these requirements or have X number of vehicles that we require in order to stay on schedule, we'll go and look at other providers. And I think, you know, ultimately that's a, a good thing for competition and a good thing for the industry. Um, and so, you know, I think at this point, it's more important that NASA sticks to the schedule um, than uh, sticks to the contract. And it's, it's worth stopping at this point and, and thinking about what, the, what you just said means. Uh, it's, we have over the last 20 years, including what SpaceX is doing, developed multi-platform capabilities. So with respect to getting to the moon with any kind of payload at this juncture, with the success of Artemis 1, we're going to have, in addition to the Artemis 1, we're going to have Falcon Heavy, Falcon 9. We have Ariane out of Europe. So, so this is really the first time in history where the, the nature of, of free market principles, multiple players is possible because it was before just one government agency in maybe three countries or territories on the planet that was able to do this. Now we have private, public, multiple platforms for launch and delivery. And I think that it only bodes health and longevity for the entire program. Yeah, that's absolutely right. In, in fact, I want to give an honorable mention to uh, Rocket Lab, who is um, developing their carbon fiber um, smaller size rockets uh, here in Long Beach. And they are actually able to do direct to moon um, launches. And I believe they did a, um, a launch uh, like that for um, an international partner recently. So that's absolutely correct. There's, there's more provider and, and more options to get to space and to execute your missions than ever before.
Let's hope NASA continues with this process of holding the manufacturers and, and folks that have these contracts. Let's hope they keep holding them to the fire because we need to try to stick to these deadlines and these budgets. Historically, it's been something that's been a challenge, even with this Artemis program. Um, you know, we're many years over allocated timeline and budget and hopefully that just continues to disappear as we move forward with more contractors and more eyeballs on these lunar missions. Yeah. I, w I wanted to draw our attention to some of the secondary payloads for Artemis one. So, you know, we're, we're doing this launch to qualify the system that will bring humans uh, back to the moon. Um, but while we're there, we're doing some other exciting uh, science um, specifically around moon exploration. Um, and so this secondary payload um, lunar ice cube is designed to scan and detect um, uh, different uh, water ice sites uh, around the moon. There's also the lunar polar hydrogen mapper, which is um, um, similarly aimed to detect um, water ice in permanently shadowed craters. There's the Near-Earth Asteroid Scout, which is going to attempt a solar flyby of a near-Earth asteroid with a solar sail. And then lastly, the last one that I wanted to highlight is called Omo Tenashi, which is designed by the Japanese aerospace industry, um, which is a probe that's attempting to land on the moon using solid rocket motors. Now, that's really interesting um, because solid rocket motors are notoriously difficult to control once you light them. It's kind of like a, like a firework. Once you light it, you just, you just step away. Um, but one of the benefits of using solid rocket motors in this application is that they're really stable. So you could presumably have, um, you know, your, your, your mission um, with, these, with these solid rocket motors uh, up near the moon for a long time and then use them when you need to. Um, so those are just a couple of the secondary payloads that are going up um, as part of Artemis 1 that are going to be um, delivered to the moon's uh, surface and environs. Yeah. And, and in orbit, there's a couple that are designed for, you know, mapping and scanning the uh, surface for the purpose of mining. And I think the, the NIA scout is something that for us is obviously, you know, pretty interesting that uh, we're seeing NASA sponsor programs for um, asteroid detection and, and, collection of data and even samples with all of the, some of the other missions. So the, the notion that this is Artemis is, is just about the moon. Um, it's about getting out past geo and getting into an environment where we can start developing the, uh, resources, tools and resources to really establish a long-term presence. And so this is about the lunar surface lunar orbit, and near-Earth asteroids. And let's not forget there's about 12 partners that are currently approved in the Artemis programs, two and three. And they're providing all kinds of technological services and innovation, including, you know, uh, constellation communication around the moon, uh, material and, and uh, personnel transport from the lunar gateway to the surface, uh, moon surface vehicles, moon, you know, uh, off-roaders, 
all kinds of technologies being developed by private uh, parties, private enterprise that is going to be integral part of the Artemis programs. And it's part of the, you know, I think they've already allocated up to a billion dollars to private parties as part of the Artemis program at this point. This is, you know, all of these ancillary missions are serving to, um, Matt, like you were saying, not only um, get us onto the moon permanently, but also um, start to branch out more easily, um, cl more closely to to the to the Earth in the coming years. Uh, but I wanted to address the permanent lunar structures um, and presence momentarily, and kind of paint a picture a little bit about that. Um, Freyer, you kind of talked about some of the different elements that are are coming into play technologically, and the different companies that are that are um, developing those technologies. But what does that look like in terms of you know being that person who's on the moon? And um, it's really interesting, you know, the the base camp element of Artemis kind of integrates everything that you were just talking about, Freyer. They have um, an established lunar cabin um, that will be on the surface. Then they also have uh, a mobile, basically RV unit is my understanding that they'll be able to um, take out for extended missions. And then also their lunar rovers um, for, you know, closer scientific missions around the actual cabin. And I just think like taking a second to like conceptualize and visualize the fact that there are about to be humans permanently on the moon, granted they'll be rotating out, right? It's not going to be the same person, but there's going to be humans on the moon in lunar cabins with lunar rovers and lunar motorhomes, more or less, <laughs> um, in the next decade. You know, this yeah. is all happening yeah. right now. This yeah. is so interesting and intriguing. Yeah. Before you jump in with the facts, let me take a flight of imagination, Miguel, that um, I need crutches of visualization to imagine what this really looks like. So I go to The Martian as a movie, and I also go to the TV show For All Mankind, which shows us a little bit of a glimpse of the sort of permanent presence on a moon base and what that looks like. Going out, doing science and research, uh, transportation of material, uh, having an RV, having all, also, you know, different rovers and, for different purposes. And, and it helps me imagine, you know, and I often think about this human psychological component of this. There's a, there's an, uh, there's a bravery, incredible bravery involved. There is incredible, possibly loneliness involved as well, and other psychological challenges. But but in terms of the the mechanical infrastructure, I I can I can visualize what that starts to look like based on, you know, you do your research on who is part of the program already. But but you know, as crutches, you have TV programs that help us imagine this as well. Sorry yeah, and that's been that's been a theme in a lot of our discussions on Twitter. And I think we'll probably eventually bring that into the podcast as well. Uh, but uh, Matt, you mentioned it last week, life imitates art. 
And, you know, so many of the technological advancements, not only in the space industry, but really in industry as a whole for humanity have come directly because uh, someone created a solution to a problem in a fictional world that was then replicated in the real world. Um, you know, Freya, one, one of the ones you've brought up many times uh, on spaces is the cell phone um, and, you know, the, the mobile communication devices that have been portrayed for decades in science fiction, uh, but only, you know, within the last dozen years or so have really become mainstream pieces of technology that everyone has in their pocket. So, um, yeah, very just just another another element that I think um, is worth pointing out and, and exploring as we talk about these different missions in real life as well. I think it's crucial to the future of exploration for people to imagine um, and share with the greater culture what the imagination of exploration looks like. And we've been doing that, telling stories of, um, you know, whether it was hundreds of years ago, telling stories of tales of going off across the oceans, um, or in the last hundred years, telling stories of going off across the galaxies on the Starship Enterprise or whatever it may be. These are all things that inspire us to continue to develop the things that will be needed to actually make those things uh, viable. And I think there's every generation has, you know, a, a, a need and something to look to, to draw inspiration from as a kid growing up. Like, what is it that inspired you to get into um, aerospace engineering or space, you know, spacecraft design, whatever it is, like, how did you get there? And I think there's an inspiration that everybody needs. And realistically, there's also some technology that's developed right after that, or right because of that. Um, because uh, of that. So true. It's because of that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just so waiting for the warp core to be designed. <laughs> so true. I, I think you, you guys are absolutely correct. I think there's a, a feedback loop. Um, that goes back and forth between, you know, entertainment and, um, and, and, and the real, the real science. Um, I, I've read so many cool, um, projects to, about so many different cool projects recently. For example, there is one, uh, contract that was awarded recently to, um, prove out a technology to use solar power to make bricks on the moon. And these bricks are for the purpose of making landing pads. So you send up your little robot and in six months time, you have a landing pad built by this robot for your rockets and, and different spacecraft to land. Um, you know, and so I think as we, as we read some of these, there's another project that's about um, 3D printing habitats um, using the moon's, um, the moon's regolith, right? And so, you know, there's, there's, there's absolutely a feedback cycle where um, engineers are inspired by some of the visions of the near future and, and far future. Um, and then, you know, once you take a look at what's actually in development, that's super inspiring too. And so um, I think that's absolutely crucial to, to keep people motivated and, and um, you know, pushing the envelope for exploration. This is how the human mind works. And, and, and this is how we inspire one another. And, 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 you know, when people say this art imitates life, imitates art, 
it's it's uh, it's really the human mind and its imagination, ingenuity, and creativity at work, mm-hmm. and how we inspire one another, and how that leads to innovation that takes us forward. Um, th- th- this is also part of why space exploration is 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 our destiny. It is it is integral in our in our nature to explore and reach beyond our current limits. And I, I heard an interesting quote recently from somebody that said, uh, we now know more about the surface of Mars than we know about the depths of the oceans on Earth. So I think, I think there's just so much more to explore for us. And uh, this is really the beginning. And, and, and we've, we, it's taken us this long uh, to, uh, and I say that because, you know, Apollo was 50 years ago. Um, it's taken us this long to sort of commit to the long-term presence and evolution of expansion of our space capabilities. It has taken us this long, but we're here. And that's super exciting. Yeah. Now, um, Max, you had some questions about um, surface habitats and and uh, I have some some things to share with you with regards to Artemis three. But mm-hmm. I, I wanted a chance to, to talk really quickly about Artemis two. Now, Artemis two, we're going to actually load up four astronauts and send them around the moon. Um, this will be the first time that astronauts will be in, in deep space since 1972. So it will be uh, will have been 50 years since um, and, we sent astronauts to deep space. And not only just deep space, but it, it's the furthest out any humans will ever have gone because of the orbit it will take that's, around yeah. the lunar, uh, around That's the correct. That's correct. Now, originally, this, this portion of the mission has been uh, removed, but originally, listen to this, the crewed mission was intended to collect samples from a captured asteroid in lunar orbit by the now canceled asteroid redirect mission. And just really briefly, for those that aren't aware, the asteroid redirect mission, um, its goal was to land a spacecraft on a much larger asteroid, but capture a six meter boulder, which is um, you know in, in the um, within the range of, of uh, the type of mission that we have planned, um, and bring that uh, to the moon's surface. And so that's where, sorry, to the moon's orbit. And that's where the, um, the astronauts were going to collect um, some of those samples. Now, they've determined that um, the level of uh, risk associated with the type of mission that they wanted to conduct, which is really a human habitation and qualification uh, test, um, didn't quite fall in scope uh, uh, with this mission. Um, and so that portion of the mission has been scrapped. But again, um, this, this, um, this portion of the mission was originally proposed in 2013. So we've been talking about um, capturing and redirecting pieces of asteroids or asteroids for almost 10 years now. I mean, longer than that, but um, uh, projects have been proposed for almost 10 years now. And so, again, this is only a matter of time, not a matter of, uh, of if. And that ARM asteroid redirect mission was a precursor to the DART double asteroid redirect uh, mission that just recently has successfully crashed a spacecraft into an asteroid to alter its trajectory. Um, very different mission profiles, but, uh, you, know, you know, I just find it extremely fascinating that there was such a push towards the collection of resources so early on and trying to get that tied into the Artemis program 
um, really wish that would have happened from a personal um, and industry perspective. I think that would have done a lot more for, uh, you know, some of the aspects that we're trying to prove and, and push forward on. Yeah. Uh, it would have been very in a line with, with, with what X Labs and many other are trying to do. But um, the DART also has some great science and, and mission profiles that help many other aspects of, the, of what we're trying to do. So that's a, a, something interesting that's happening with Artemis 2. Now, with Artemis 3, um, which is where we're actually going to land uh, astronauts back on the moon and do some lunar exploration, um, I wanted to, to say that NASA's goal, there's going to be four astronauts um, that are going to launch from Earth from this mission. But there's only going to be two that are going to go down to the moon's surface. The other two are either going to stay in the Orion capsule or they're going to stay in the Lunar Gateway, um, you know, pending availability. But NASA has stated openly and publicly that one of the two astronauts that's going to land on the moon is going to be a woman, the first woman to walk on the surface of the moon. So this is some really, you know, historical, uh, you know, super interesting stuff. I mean, the way that we are sort of setting these milestones, we're, 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 we're going beyond just, you know, the, the crossing off the checkbox, but we're really thinking intentionally about what some of these accomplishments mean for us as a culture and as a, mm -hmm. as a species. We had no follow-up to that, Miguel. That was just perfect. <laughs> no problem. Yeah, that was that was very well, very concise, just, well put together thought. No problem. Yes. I got I got I got just some more stuff. Okay. Right on the end of that. <laughs> yeah. So, in addition for Artemis three, one of the really interesting things about it is that NASA plans to preposition um, a lunar rover. Now, we've seen some of the pictures and videos of the previous lunar rover, and they they look kind of flimsy, to be honest. Um, but NASA plans to land this rover on the moon ahead of time. Um, and one of the great things about it is that um, Mission Control will be able to navigate the rover autonomously. So we're mm -hmm. incorporating the technology that we need in order to drive it around uh, on its own, uh, much like the Perseverance, Perseverance rover and, and other automated vehicles, um, to assist um, the astronauts in, in their exploration. Matt, didn't you mention something about there being a space trophy truck at some point? Well, actually, one of the uh, 11 uh, CubeSats that are on the Artemis mission is actually designed as a um, like a drag racing CubeSat, Team Miles. Um, cool. And that's one of the, the, the CubeSats that's uh, landing on the moon from this Artemis 1 mission. So... There is a precursor to some racing activity already happening on the moon right now in this Artemis One launch. So I think the it's, evolution of the lunar rover and what's happening, we're we're leading towards some some off road moon races in the future for sure. I see uh, future uh, telescopic views of the moon just showing endless amount of crisscrossing tracks all over the place. Right, that's what going to be the reality. I I stop at the uh, physics present on the moon. At, you know, when you're dealing with six percent of the gravity of Earth, you you have both pros and cons when it comes to trophy trucks or any kind of vehicles <laughs> driving on the surface of the moon. 
uh, clearly, if you drive and over a hill and a little bit of a rock, it jumps and and uh, flips very easily because of the absence of gravity. Those are the things to look for in terms of driving skills on the moon. Um, on the contrary, because of the absence of gravity, you can carry so much more load. So so it's going to be interesting, and I I can't wait because I've I've stared at so many lunar uh, footage clips of the rover of the moon back in the in the Apollo days, and I'm just fascinated at, at, at the ability to 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 have been doing that so early on in the space program. So so what these new vehicles are going to be doing, I cannot wait. They're going to have cameras. They're going to have they're going to have live feed possibly. You know, mm-hmm. it's going to be incredibly mm-hmm. fascinating. Yeah, we better not get uh, that uh, toaster video. We better get some high-definition stuff. Um, now, with regards to the rovers and, and uh, Artemis III, um, you know, for you were talking about the racing. The, the planned missions um, include short forays from 5 to 15 kilometers or 3 to 9 miles, which is uh, quite a bit, you know, for, for moon exploration. Uh, and I think also, historically speaking, that's, that's quite a bit as well. And so, you know, these these rovers are going to be hustling. The the uh, the rover that's going to be prepositioned for Artemis three is going to be unpressurized. But we also saw a contract that was awarded to a Japanese manufacturer for a pressurized rover. And so, um, you know, to your point, yeah, there's just a, a number of different super exciting programs that are um, geared up in order to contribute to uh, lunar and deep space exploration. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, Miguel, when you say pressurized versus unpressurized, the pressurized one enables an astronaut to enter, go through decompression chamber, and, and then be literally out of the suit inside the vehicle. That's whereas, correct. Whereas the unpressurized means you have to stay in your suit as you drive that's, the vehicle. That's correct. And the pressurized vehicle will likely allow for much longer duration exploration missions um, because the vehicle is able to, you know, accommodate more um, life support supplies um, Mm -hmm. than your suit would. Now, we were talking before about, uh, you know, inspiring um, entertainment from the the real science and vice versa. Uh, I think one of the other really interesting things that's come out of the real exploration, the real science is the possibility to live, uh, to habitate in lava tubes, right? So imagine, you know, the real science having astronauts in this pressurized rover driving into a lava tube to see if uh, if it's suitable for the habitat on the next mission. That's literally like a, a free, ready-to-go uh, chamber that if we're mm-hmm. able to wall it off, you've got your uh, space station, beginnings of a space station under the surface. Uh, yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Okay. So we're talking a lot about rovers. What about lunar drones? Because I'm not a physicist, but it would seem in my limited understanding of physics that less gravity would mean uh, it'd be easier for a drone to operate potentially with a higher payload even. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm curious if there's truth to that. And if so, why haven't we seen more lunar drones or, or, or terrestrial drones like on these different services, maybe even on Mars, for example? 
Um, yeah. So uh, really good question. Um, you know, the ch one of the challenges uh, with the moon is that the moon has no atmosphere, right? So um, we have drones here on Earth because, you know, when the when the drones, you know, turn their propellers, they can they can use the air to sort of push off of, let's say, um, oh, now yeah, on Mars, sense. there is a um, flying drone that they tested, uh, you know, for the first time with the Perseverance rover. Um, and Mars does have an atmosphere. It's not breathable. Um, but I believe they were scheduled uh, to fly. Uh, their, their mission duration uh, was three flights. And I believe the last time I checked, they've done over 15 flights. So they've had tremendous success, um, you know, being able to do science and, and also observation of the Mars Pers Perseverance rover um, with this flying drone. Uh, and I think it's actually been one of the highlights of the Perseverance rover mission. They've, they've found that the platform that they designed for, um, for flight on Mars was incredibly successful. Um, and so, you know, the, the problem we, we can have um, ter terrestrial rovers on the moon you know, driving around. But the reason why we haven't seen them flying around is because they would, um, they would need fuel for, uh, to get around. And we currently have no refueling um, uh, technology around the moon. Um, but uh, speaking of refueling, one of the things that um, needs to be in place in order to allow Artemis three to happen is a large refueling depot on orbit. So, human landing system, which is being designed in SpaceX uh, by SpaceX is going to be launched from Earth and it needs to refuel uh, in orbit before it goes to the moon. So between now and 2025, SpaceX needs to complete their human landing system. They need to launch a fuel depot to low Earth orbit and they need to fill up the fuel depot um, um, before they can um, have the steps in place to do Artemis three. Uh, and so, again, we're talking about an incredible amount of infrastructure that is going to be developed um, so that all of these uh, missions can 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 happen. What's the what steps need to be taken in order to uh, transition from combustible fuel in that environment to, um, you know, maybe electric fuel or, or something more sustainable potentially and is that possible right i mean yeah that's a really good question so um we have today what's called hybrid uh, solar electric propulsion and so what that is is a technology to use electricity um, that we gather from the sun um, to to accelerate um, small particles of propellant um, and that's that's essentially what's called ion propulsion um, now, the problem is, is that you still need some kind of um, fuel, something that has mass um, that you can push out uh, uh, the business end of the of the engine. Um, and so currently, you know, we use some specialty gases. We use xenon and some other ones. Um, but, you know, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that we can find materials um, in space on the moon or elsewhere. Um, that fit the bill for this type of propulsion. So again, what we're doing is we're, we're using solar energy to um, impart, um, you know, thrust on these small particles. And, and so, you know, the steps to get there, I think the science needs to advance a little bit, but it's absolutely um, right around the corner in terms of being able to 
get fuel from uh, wherever we're at. And, and in fact, you know, one of the ways that SpaceX is trying to do that is with methane. So, so methane uh, is going to be traditional chemical propulsion, which means you're essentially burning things, but we can produce methane uh, from biological processes uh, in deep space. And so, you know, the solar electric propulsion is one way to do that. If we get really good at producing uh, methane and, and, and hydrogen and oxygen, um, you know, there's, there's other ways to do that too. Um, so it's only a few steps. You, you know, I think the question is, you know, what are the steps to get there? I think we're only a few steps away from being able to, um, you know, provide our own fuel in space for a number of different uh, propulsion techniques. Thinking about the potential that some, a concept like that can unlock. Um, I mean, imagine a, imagine a world where you have essentially unlimited fuel in these, in these environments that we don't have to be, um, transporting, you know, reserves in on a regular basis by any means, everything is self-sustaining and, um, kind of in a feedback loop with itself. Almost. It's just, yeah. I mean, you don't have to imagine that. Just look at, uh, you know, transportation here on earth, uh, whether it's cars or, uh, airplane transportation or, or like ship, have, ocean liners. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, we, we, we don't have, you know, if you think about doing a cross country road trip or you think about flying somewhere, like nobody is concerned about the fueling aspect or how you're going to get there. If you can carry mm -hmm. fuel with you. Because we've developed over the last hundred years an infrastructure that, that has the resources and produces the resource, the fuel needed to uh, provide transportation and provide all of these things. So um, what's happening in space right now is really the exact process of uh, where we were in the early days of combustional engines and creating a uh, network infrastructure to enable transportation on a continuous basis. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's the concept of, you know, imagine if you were doing a road trip from LA to New York um, in a car, but you had to take all the fuel with you. Um, how, what kind of vehicle, how would you do that? And that's, that's the mindset that we have now when, when we're talking about space exploration. Uh, but that, mindset over the next several decades and those restraints and those restrictions of um, what we know is possible, what we think is possible, what we can imagine um, is, is going to be lifted. And just imagine people's concepts of what was possible for exploration just here in the United States for, from a road trip perspective. Okay. It's you, your family, you're going on a summer road trip. It's 1928. And you're going on a summer road trip. Where do you think you can go? Like, what is in your imagination? Where, how are you planning this as compared to 2028? Um, you're planning a summer road trip. What are the restrictions and limitations? And, and if you have none of those restrictions, because fuel is no longer an obstacle in imagining what you can do, where you can go and, and, and all of the things that you can, you can do along the way. Um, that's the same thing that's going to start happening in space is, is we're going to be able to 
get beyond this um, this uh, blocker of what is possible and just start acting and just start enabling things to move forward at such a pace that we never thought was possible before. Yeah. Well, now, you know, I was thinking high efficiency propulsion, but the truth is, you know, once we find ice and we're able to break it down into oxygen and hydrogen, you know, there's nothing that's keeping us from just pressurizing some hydrogen and using that for propulsion. And so, you know, is, is a, I mean, that's the absolute simplest way. All you need is just a pump and, and some of the hydrogen uh, and a tank to put to your, your pressurized propellant in. But the space launch system is using liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen. So really the key here is water and ice. Um, if we have enough water ice, we could do exactly the things that you're talking about, which has, which is to have a completely sustainable propulsion uh, and um, and life support s systems uh, needs met uh, indefinitely. It is it is you know when it comes down to it, it's very simple. It's energy, and it is uh, water. Those two things, and uh, we are actually watching live rebuilding of an infrastructure on Earth with the uh, you know recharging system for electric cars. It's ha you know, I, I remember it's only a few years ago. You couldn't even drive to San, from L.A. to San Francisco mm -hmm. because there weren't enough charging stations along the way. Along came Tesla and, and built those, and now there's multiple systems. And, and now we have conversion plugs between systems and so forth. Um, it's worth mentioning because of what you said, Miguel, about, about the water as a source of life support as well as energy, that this very day, today, as we speak, Juno is passing by Europa. So, okay, let me segue for that for a moment on that. It, it goes to show that uh, NASA and others are involved in multiple missions simultaneously. So there's a lot of activity, like Miguel, you pointed to with the SpaceX uh, dates upcoming with the fuel depot and, and the transport vehicle and so forth. But today, you know, yesterday, Dart today, Juno is passing by Europa, and why are they doing that? They're doing the closest flyby observation of Europa since the Galileo program of the late 1990s. And why are they doing that? Because Europa, a site, it's a you know one of Jupiter's largest moons, is maybe the biggest source of water and ice in the solar system outside of Earth. And so the obvious intent and, 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 and purpose here is to assess the accessibility of water on Europa. And, and, and I honed in on a couple of details of the mission. They're going to measure the thickness of the ice to see how much effort it's going to be to drill through the ice into the liquid oceans that flow all around Europa in a salt water state, which is even more fascinating to me. Uh, salt water state, it means it's preservable, doesn't evaporate, it stays by gravity on the planet, and it, it, is, it is in an absolute ready to go, ready to take state. So I think that once we see those missions bring fruit, we're, we're looking at a multiple uh, 
efforts on multiple fronts, if you will, uh, securing those energy resources. And, and, and it just so happens, Juno is flying by Europa as we speak. Europa could be a, a fuel stop on the way to lots of other places in the solar system. You know, in fact, I I believe I heard some people that were proposing that um, Europa is a better next logical step for NASA to send humans to after the moon before Mars. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, a lot of these things are in flux. Like you mentioned earlier, you know, they're absolutely based on our need to create infrastructure um, that then supports um, exploration. Sidebar, but Europa containing massive reserves of salt water. Does that mean that in terms of finding life somewhere else, that might be one of our best known sources right now? Absolutely. In fact, on Mars, we're looking for evidence of past life. So we're, we're hoping to find some fossils, um, you know, some, some organic compounds that point to a life, which I believe they have found recently that they dug into a rock and they found, um, all of the organic compounds needed to support life. Um, but in terms of places where we could find life that's still living, Europa may be our best bet. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's a little bit further away. I like the notion of NASA pushing forward to Europa and supporting SpaceX and other uh, commercial efforts to uh, to Mars. Um, I think NASA setting the precedent and putting the furthest, you know, um, scientific exploration uh, milestone out there for the rest of the industry to follow setting that as Europa seems like it would be the best use of NASA's purpose, you know, existence and NASA. And and I was listening to um, some of the conversations that have been happening with the director and some of the folks at NASA and really looking at NASA as a leader of space exploration and pushing the boundaries of where we're headed and what type of technologies we can uh, develop and supporting the uh, commercial endeavors uh, here in the U.S. and, and globally with our partners across uh, across the globe. That should be the the purpose of NASA, and I think I would definitely support them pushing past Mars and into Europa as the next missions. Yeah. So just just for some context, Europa is about the size of our moon. Um, but has more water than all of the Earth's oceans. It's essentially a complete water planet. And and that's water, but then there's a thick layer of ice above all of that as well. So there's like Correct. a, yeah. Right. We don't saw the surface. So Juno's primary mission is to measure the thickness of the ice. Yeah. Water world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh let's man! Get, let's let's send Kevin Costner to Europa. Let's get this thing going. I was gonna say, I think I think we just uh, <laughs> pitched a Waterworld sequel on an icy planet with that's Kevin a, Costner. That's a sci-fi Waterworld too. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and there uh, has been a Watermelt Waterworld sequel, hasn't there? Uh, There's two of them, right? Yeah. Is there? I think so. I think there is. The second one really didn't hit well. 
So I, th- I think they really need to start the franchise over with the Europa yeah. launch. Yeah. There, there, there's a lot of activity going on. And I, I, I you know, China just sent out a, a note that their uh, Mars rover, they have a Mars rover too, the Chinese, and uh, they've been doing some underground measures up to a depth of about 100 or 200 meters on the surface of the Mars. And they're finding boulders. And um, the technology involved in this, I'm not, you know, this is, this is incredible, obviously, but they're finding boulders of various sizes that are water um, massage, like rocks and boulders in, the, in our beaches, on our beaches. What that tells them, they're making the, they're making the conclusion based on the shape of those rocks that look like our, you know, uh, uh, the shoreline type rocks that these were oceans at some point in the past on the surface of the Mars. Where that water went, we don't know, but, but, but goes to show that, that our knowledge and our ability to, to build an infrastructure and understand uh, elements and history of our, our solar system, not just our planet, is, is evolving at a very rapid rate right now. Now, I wanted to um, draw our attention uh, to the double asteroid redirection test um, mission that NASA recently uh, completed or, or completed in part. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about this because, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding about what this mission actually was. I actually um, heard from a, a, a connection of mine that said that somebody approached them and uh, told them that the asteroid that NASA um, hit with this with this spacecraft was actually on its way to Earth, and that's why NASA needed to uh, intercept it. And so, um, you know, that's that, fortunately that not the case. Hap- that didn't happen to be Bruce Willis, was it? Just no, Bruce. Will- what's what's Bruce Bruce Willis been talking about these days? No, Bruce Willis was not on the double asteroid redirection test. Okay. Um, fortunately, he's a national treasure. Um, but um, you know this this mission that um, that NASA uh, you know recently completed this big milestone. Um, this spacecraft needed to be designed much differently than than other spacecraft um, before it, and so really it was uh, essentially a, a, a test of the of the technology for the spacecraft. Um, if you think about Kevlar vest, when the bullet hits the Kevlar vest. Its job is to dissipate the energy so that the projectile, um, you know, doesn't doesn't impact what's behind it, right? And so, a Kevlar vest essentially does the opposite of what um, this spacecraft was supposed to do. The spacecraft was supposed to uh, impart as much momentum onto um, the asteroid, which means that it needed to be designed in a specific way um, so that it wouldn't um, just sort of uh, um, quickly. Uh, smash into a, a million bits and dissipate all its energy, um, and so it was, you know, a really good test of um, of, of NASA's um, uh, ability to develop this type of platform for planetary defense purposes in the future. Um, and so there's a lot of data that's still coming back. There's a, actually a follow-up mission that's planned um, to um, Didymos to assess um, the impact site. Um, and sort of validate a lot of their um, a lot of their models for this type of this type of mission, and hence the acronym DART, right? Um, yeah. This may be a precursor to a planetary defense system. 
we this is what we may be onto here. So my curiosity, and you alluded to it, Miguel, is you know did it change trajectory significantly? Uh, what was the size uh, and in power of the impact versus the size and 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 weight of the of the rock itself? Um, these are the questions that I have, and I don't know if you have any insights into that now, but it's something that we, I'm definitely going to be curious about observing and watching in, in weeks to come. What are we learning from this impact? Yeah, apparently is, um, yeah. there's an observatory on Earth that was able to observe um, the impact on the asteroid. Um, so we have you know, a number of different uh, visual confirmations of impact, both from the craft um, and an Earth-based observatory. But I think it'll take um, a little bit uh, longer between days and weeks and months to assess the exact uh, impact, no pun intended, uh, on its trajectory. What is uh, the motivation behind pushing this mission forward in this timeline? Because one of the things, Frey, you talked about was you know, there's a lot of emphasis on order of operations in terms of, of what mission happens when. So I'm curious, uh, what's, what is driving this particular mission? Is it just the notion that, okay, we're in space now, so we need to start, um, looking into possible defense options. Um, is it, I mean, since we've been going to space, the notion of an asteroid impact having dramatic devastating effects on earth has been, uh, a continued, a driver of a number of missions and dart is is obviously you know a defense uh designed mission that uh is testing an enormous amount of different th concepts and theories and, and systems for what will be applied to later um asteroid defense protocols and and missions so it's it's a part of what we need to do as a civilization to uh, not just sustain but preserve and and protect our uh, existence. So, uh, virologists, um, immunologists, bacterial, all, all all the scientists related to to diseases, infectious diseases, have been saying since the fifties, forties, fifties. A pandemic, viral pandemic, is only a matter of time, and it's going to kill millions of people. Well, guess what? Uh, the other thing that is also true, and we know as a fact, uh, a large asteroid hitting Earth with an impact that can destroy entire cities and population centers is also only a matter of time. So in our pursuit, with our technology and our ability, uh, going to the moon, creating base stations, and then continuing exploration beyond that, in parallel, it behooves us to address those threats at the same time. And just like we're doing the moon Artemis missions, we're simultaneously, you know, I can literally look out my window and I see JPL, where I know there's hundreds of people monitoring, managing, and driving rovers on the surface of Mars. So we have the capability and the funds to do many things at the same time. And I think this DART mission is yet another parallel purposeful endeavor that needs to continue because it is only a matter of time 
before an asteroid with serious consequence heads, heads straight on Earth, and we have to be able to address it. And, and we need those defense measures, you know. Uh, you, one one would uh, define what uh, SpaceX is doing, Elon is doing, to colonize Mars as an offensive measure for the long-term sustainability of the human population. Uh, but we we need more defensive measures in order to protect what is uh, already here. Uh, so this yeah. this is one of multiple counters that that has to be at play. You guys are absolutely right. We want to have multiple avenues to prevent uh, a large scale disaster, right? And I think you know, with regards to the timing, one of the things that um, that was asked was, you know, why does this mission make sense now? Um, it, you know, I just want to point out that our ability to sort of avert this type of natural catastrophe is very low and if not non-existent before the double asteroid redirect mission. And so, you know, I think NASA evaluated the technology in its portfolio, saw that SpaceX um, was taking steps to sort of mitigate um, the chances of a large scale risk and realized that they didn't really have anything in the portfolio that would um, sort of cover a different aspect of, of this catastrophe mitigation. Now, I just want to point out this type of test is really some of the more basic uh, types of technology that we can employ for planetary defense. You know, trying to ballistically um, change the course of, of an asteroid is, is again, one of the first steps um, in, in planetary defense. Um, with the technology that we are developing, we hope to uh, develop a more finessed approach to be able to uh, change the course um, productively uh, of, uh, of near-Earth objects. I'm just glad you guys are clarifying that this is aimed at uh, solving the Armageddon-type problem and not the uh, Mars Attacks-type problem. So that's what I was really... <laughs> well, th there's a whole yeah, conversation yeah. that can be had about <laughs> the crossover between those two things because when we were talking about Mars, I, I wanted, I, I sat on myself to not go there, but if this is off the record, I'll go there. Um, we have done radioisotope readings in the uh, atmosphere of Mars. And one of the things we found is trace presence of a scene on 127. Uh, there's only one other place seen on 127 uh, can be found. And that's uh, a lot in Nevada and a lot in Japan. It's only, it's a created byproduct. The Sina-127 is a created byproduct of nuclear explosions. So how come there is a Sina-127 on Mars? We have observed it, it's there, scientifically provable. Um, it, it, it looks the same, it behaves the same. Uh, and, and it's one of those intrigues in the universe that I think space exploration in general uh, makes us ask questions, and hopefully, in the long run, we we gain answers as well. Yeah, that may I include have... that may include we're not alone in the universe, you know. Mm -hmm. Or this isn't the first time around. This is not the first. This is not our first rodeo. <laughs> this is not our first rodeo. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think ultimately, I I end up with the same question there. Um, that ties into what you just said, Matt. And, um, 
similar to the river rocks question is that xenon 127 um already at mars or or is it possible that 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 showed up there you know because of things that we've done on earth over the last 50 years 70 years doubtful yeah that was my assumption there was a really interesting uh, case recently where the rover perseverance rover found what looked like grass on mars and um it was just something that was foreign to the landscape just looked really different and it turns out it was a piece of a uh, frayed parachute line that had um you know been jettisoned um when the perseverance rover uh, landed with its uh with its parachute uh going through the atmosphere and so mm-hmm. you know there's definitely the possibility to make discoveries on mars um we just haven't found haven't found the little little green men yet but but rest assured we're going to leave our litter you know and everywhere no matter, <laughs> no matter what that is a that is a staple of humanity that's one of the best arguments for us not having uh gone to space previously is we we're not finding enough junk <laughs> no i i wouldn't it be awesome to come across like a snickers wrapping paper you know? a nice mar, a mars bar <laughs> mars bar a mars bar go. thank you there you go. Yeah, well, I, I mean, realistically, you know, there could be a discovery like that right around the corner. I mean, yeah. we, we are out there on another planet with a camera and a microphone. We're digging. We're flying around Mars with the with the with the copter. Um, so, you know, these types of discoveries could very well be around the corner. We we definitely mm-hmm. have to keep an open mind. Man, just imagine what a discovery like that would do globally i mean that kind of turns every single concept and institution that we've predicated our lives and belief systems on upside down you know <laughs> yeah 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 somewhat for sure you know how you, you'll be walking on the beach and you'll see a rock that has a a little fossil some something left over of like a, a shell you know if if we find anything like that you know on mars as the rover is walking around we have to go back to the drawing table and a lot of things but that's yeah. That's the reason why we're out there is we, we hope to learn things that um, weren't previously uh, knowledge that wasn't previously available to us. And remember, it's not that far in the past that we generally believed Earth was flat. So, so our, our need to expand our horizons of knowledge and what the universe really is, is, is definitely part of, part of what, what will happen. And mm-hmm. it will reorganize how we think about ourselves our origins, um, as well as possibly the origins of the universe itself. Yeah. We all haven't left the flat earth period of time. But not all point. of us. That is true. Was, that is, yeah. <laughs> Still yeah. got a few people stuck in that mindset. <laughs> and and one, of the, one of the other points that I want to make before we close is, you know, sometime not that long ago in the future, flying across the ocean was a really far out idea. Uh, or, you know, reusable rockets was a really far out idea. Um, and when we talk about, you know, lunar habitats now, um, or people on Mars or cities on Mars, um, you know, it feels like it's a, a far away uh, concept, but few decades in the future, this, this type of um, mission may be commonplace. And so again, we just have to keep an open mind and, and a willingness to, um, you know, try things that we haven't tried before. 
uh, for the sake of exploration so that we can make those types of progress. And to tie, tie it back to what, what Matthew said about road trips uh, in, in, in our lifetime, road trip to Mars. Love it. Now we're talking. Airbnb uh, on an asteroid. Yeah. Airbnb, Mars, lava tubes. Let's go. Lava tubes. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for tuning into the Explorers Podcast, brought to you by X-Labs. X-Labs is pioneering resource exploration and management by developing capabilities that enable the acquisition and access to rare and valuable resources. Utilizing these new super heavy lift rockets, X-Labs is developing the next generation of space vehicles for exploration designed to capture asteroid resources. Our vehicles will go deep into space and carry out missions and some of the first ever private enterprise accomplishments in space exploration. Be sure to subscribe to wherever you are listening to this podcast. And for more information on X-Labs, head over to our website at www.xlabs.space to stay updated on missions, ask questions to members of the company, or to learn more about how you can be a part of X-Labs.